listener production. Armani Haydar lost her mother in a brutal act of violence that was perpetrated by her father in March of 2015. She was five months pregnant with her first baby at the time. The horror of that experience shaped Armani's own perception of how she wanted to mother and how she had been mothered. Armani spent much of the two years between her mother's death and her father's trial in a daze. She said she hated her father for what he'd stolen from her and that her pain might have become unbearable were it not for her art. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Later on, we'll be bringing you The Weekend List where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, do and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Armani Haydar who once worked as a commercial litigator, but is now a painter, an advocate, and an author. And just a heads up that this episode necessarily deals with stories of family violence and domestic abuse. If that could be upsetting for you, please head back to the listener app for something else to listen to. Armani, welcome to the weekend briefing. You've said that you wanted your book, The Mother Wound, to be about, and I'm quoting here, reclaiming the right to be angry. Now, you've witnessed the unimaginable. How do you deal with your own anger? Well, I think firstly, it's really important to move away from the idea that anger is something inherently bad or that it's something that we should be ashamed of or that it's wrong and um, mean to express it. There's a growing awareness around the role of anger in pursuit of justice and the way that it's important to actually be angry when some injustice has been committed against you or against another group. So for me, initially learning to embrace that and accept it was really empowering because rather than suppressing all these angry feelings that I was having after losing my mum and after going through the process of my dad's trial allowed me to then just accept how I was feeling and work out what I'm going to do with that energy and where I'm going to direct it. And that's what led me initially into advocacy. It led me into storytelling. It led me into sharing my mum's story in different places and in different ways. And it's incredibly silencing for victims of crime or people who've experienced trauma or discrimination to be told that their anger is not okay and that they shouldn't be able to express those experiences that have caused them to feel that way or that it's undignified to share that anger or to voice it. So really the first step was about embracing it. And then for me, it's by running with it and channeling it into things that I think really help others connect with me, allow me to tell my mum's story and allow me to achieve goals that I think are really important for women's health and safety more broadly. Oh, you are so right. I'm, I look around the world and I look at different social movements and brave women like you who are in the public eye who are increasingly holding their anger and maintaining their right to be angry and not giving in to those stereotypes, I suppose, of submissive, quiet women who accept their lot in life even when that lot is horrific trauma and something they have every right to be angry about. I want to acknowledge, Armani, that just because you've talked about your mother's death in the past doesn't mean that you want to today. So please let me know if this isn't a question you want to answer. But if you feel comfortable, could you 
tell me and tell the audience about what happened the day your mother was killed? Yeah, look, I don't mind speaking about that. And I mean, writing about it was a really difficult thing to do and to delve into details that I'd put away or forgotten or even just ignored for a long time was really challenging. But I think it's important for people to understand the shock of these kinds of experiences and the thought processes that a person might be going through while they're in that state of shock. So for me, the day that I found out that my mum had been murdered by my dad, I was five months pregnant, firstly. So physically, I was experiencing grief in a very visceral way. And I initially felt completely shocked and confused because you don't expect people in your immediate life to be capable of a type of violence that you think is mostly in movies. Maybe it happens, but it's not really a big thing. And at the time, I was actually growing increasingly aware of issues around women who experience gender-based violence in Australia and how prevalent it was. And still, I hadn't made that connection between these conversations that we were having in public spaces and what was going on in my own family because my father didn't fit a stereotype that I recognised as a violent stereotype because my mum had a strength and a resilience about her that I didn't really identify with what a victim might look like, a victim of abuse. So even though she'd used words like gaslighting and controlling, I didn't link those with the potential for fatal violence. This was not an attack by a stranger. This was your father. And I imagine the way that your mother died has prompted you to then rethink your version of family memories, right? To, to search for what was maybe missing or for what might've been there, but not comprehended by you when you were a child. What, what has that process been like? It's been empowering in the sense that by revisiting moments where I felt that something was not okay or where my mum had expressed that something was not okay, but it had been dismissed, I've now been able to revisit those moments and put them in some sort of logical order and realise that, you know what, I wasn't overthinking it. I wasn't unnecessarily burdened by this experience or this information. It was my gut telling me that something was not right. And I think for my mum too, there were moments where her gut was telling her that things were not right. And I was able to reconstruct those things through the writing process, which ended up being both really confronting for me, but at the same time, by the end of it, really validating because I'd gone back to these little experiences where I'd felt either unheard or dismissed or confused about this toxic behavior that was in my environment and validated that for myself and for my inner child and been like, you know what, that wasn't okay. That was not an okay experience. And we've seen how that can be part of a broader pattern of behavior and how that can be part of really concerning behavior. When I first started my journey towards advocacy at the end of my dad's trial, one of the things that kept striking me was how prevalent cases were of homicide where there'd been no prior report of violence by the victim, where no one had really witnessed intense physical violence between the parties before. So for me, it was a real learning curve to accept that and then contextualize it within my own experiences. And it did help that people were starting to talk about coercive control and what that would look like. It helped to have a very sort of basic understanding of emotional and psychological abuse. And I've since obviously learned even more about the topic and realised that this is a huge 
part of DV that is often there before physical violence takes place. And sometimes there is no physical violence before a homicide occurs. And it's not always just an escalation. For those who are listening who might be unfamiliar, can you talk to me about what coercive control is and what it might look like? Yeah, so coercive control is what we've come to understand as a pattern of behaviour in a relationship where the abuser makes the victim or the target feel like they're treading on eggshells, that they're not able to exercise their agency, and that can include pretty serious things like being locked up at home, not being able to visit family, not being able to visit the doctors alone and, you know, potentially get advice from different organisations, not having any control over the finances. And even smaller, more insidious things like constant put downs that chip away at a person's confidence and their ability to make decisions independent of their abuser. The Mother Wound is the title of your book, but I understand it also refers to a psychological theory. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the mother wound is this idea that mothers are affected by trauma because of the fact that we live in a patriarchal world where trauma is such a huge part of girls' and women's experiences. And as a result of that, we end up having either fraught or broken relationships with our mothers and their trauma manifests in their parenting and we pass that on sort of in this like unconscious cycle to our children and they'll pass it on to their children unless they heal from it. So when I first came across this concept, I was really interested in it because intergenerational trauma had seemed like something that was running through my family. And I was pregnant at the time of losing mum. My mum had lost her mum violently too in 2006 in an Israeli drone strike in the south of Lebanon. So I started to see parallels between some of my mum's experiences of violence and my own and my mum's experience of grief and my own. And I started to think about, okay, some of these things are really structural and I don't have the power to stop them. So this violence feels really inescapable. But what power do I have? What tools can I pass on again to my own children so that they can be resilient and also to resist, you know, these really violent and oppressive structures in their lives. So the mother wound is not just about the individual and, you know, mother-daughter relationship, but the whole dynamics that we deal with globally. I think I first came across the term, the double bind reading Susan Carlin's work, which is about the experiences of Muslim women living in Australia. It refers to that tension between the harmful stereotypes of Islamophobia and Muslim women wanting to speak truthfully when violence happens in the community. How did you manage those competing pressures and what kind of response did you get from the people around you? Um, I was really conscious as soon as my mum's story started being reported in the media, which was immediately after the murder, of the way that racial stereotypes had affected my life already and the way that they would feed into how people would understand and frame my mum's story. And later on, when we went to my dad's trial, by that point, I had started wearing a hijab. I was more self-conscious than ever of how my appearance could feed into some of that stereotyping and how We didn't have the space or the language that 
other people might have access to in order to reclaim that narrative and speak about it without being conscious of those things. And speaking from lived experience is a hard thing to do in the first place. That combined with this pressure of living in an environment where racism towards Muslims has been really overt and is almost, you know, in some spaces pretty normalised. And I'd seen comments on Facebook under articles about my mum about how the violence that she experienced was because of her faith and because of my dad's religion. There were things in the trial that pointed to the fact that, for example, my mum had stopped wearing a hijab a few years before the murder. That was featured as a salient fact. (laughs) And I really try to analyse and deconstruct that in my book because it was pretty confounding that this one thing from all these other things that she'd experienced and been through and done in her life had been identified as somehow linked to this violence. You've mentioned the court process a couple of times and being involved with the courts is complex and emotionally draining for people at the best of times but for survivors and witnesses of family violence they can be re-traumatizing can you tell me about your father's trial and you have a connection to the law so I'd be interested to know what you think could be done better to support survivors and to support families yeah so at the time of the murder I was practicing as a commercial litigation solicitor in a big firm in the city. And I was very familiar with courtrooms. I was familiar with procedure. I wasn't a criminal lawyer, so it wasn't really practicing in that jurisdiction. But I had more familiarity with the courtroom than most people in the general public might. And I had a level of understanding about what my dad's trial might involve and how it would sort of play out. Despite that, having to give evidence against him, you know, to sit opposite him in a courtroom with his family who were supporting him at the time, present with media present, with people I didn't recognise present, as well as this burden of needing to say what I needed to say and be helpful somehow in this process was just the most difficult thing, honestly, after the day of, you know, my mum's murder because Firstly, two years had passed, so that was a long wait. I hadn't seen my dad in that time at all. I didn't know exactly what was going on with the trial. I was busy looking after children and dealing with a bunch of other things and looking after my sisters too. So it was a very weird experience to be called up as a witness, to sit in the witness box, to confront this room full of people and then to start speaking about things that I had only just learned to identify as abuse or as potential red flags and to want to do justice to my mum without having any kind of control over how the proceedings would play out or anything like that. So I can't even sort of sometimes grasp (laughs) how difficult it would be for anyone else to go through that without some level of understanding of what a courtroom might be like or any kind of familiarity with the legal system and the formality of it. And I think the ways that we can help victims going through that process is to perhaps offer more options in terms of how they give their evidence. I know that some people record their 
statements by video. In certain DV matters, victims can actually give their testimony via video link and they don't ever have to be in the same room as the abuser. But in a homicide matter, even if it's happened in a DV context, it's being dealt with as a homicide. And so that level of sensitivity towards victims and their family members is not there. And we were basically in this crowded space with people who generally wanted to support my dad and with my dad watching how we were presenting our evidence and being cross-examined by his barrister was a really difficult thing to do. So all of these really heightened emotions kind of came up in that environment. And I really did feel at the end of that trial that my level of trauma and stress and anxiety had gone back to exactly what it had been immediately after my mum's death and that the two years in between had not happened at all. That's the level of how re-traumatising it can be to be in that space. And we had wonderful support. We had access to support people from um, the Homicide Victim Support Group. We had a witness assistance officer from the DPP. We were, you know, my sister's a journalist and I was a lawyer. We were generally familiar with the types of things we were dealing with and it was still really, really triggering. And I think we need to sort of reimagine these spaces a little bit more, see how we can offer more of a voice and more comfort to victims and witnesses in these types of proceedings so that it's not this huge burden for them. Yeah, I think it feels like anything we can do, however small a gesture, anything we can do to support people who are going through a process like that, that could potentially be re-traumatising not just in the moment but for the weeks, months and years that follow we should be doing. You were pregnant when your mother was killed. I'm trying now to remember the incredible multitude of emotions that come with giving birth and that come with the pain of giving birth and the expectation and the possibility. For you, that was multiplied to the nth degree what were you feeling and, and thinking during the birth of that child? It was so disorienting, I think, because I think when you enter into motherhood, there's already this hyper-awareness around your own body, your mortality, the safety of your child. You really are thinking a lot about safety and survival in that moment. And I gave birth to my daughter and that was my first child, five months after losing mum. And I hadn't done as much work as I've done now on my mental health. I hadn't processed much of what had happened. I hadn't even thought about what motherhood would be like, to be honest, because I was dealing with grief and I wasn't ready to start doing all the happy things you do that, you know, to usher a child into the world. So the actual delivery room ended up feeling like this moment where I was confronting all of these feelings at once. And that physical pain of labour, a lot of it felt like my emotional pain sort of coming up to the surface and finally being expressed at the same time. So it was this, in some ways, a cathartic moment, but in other ways, a really sad realisation of how much I would need my own mother, how much she had done for me as a baby and thinking about things like, well, what am I going to do now with this child? How am I going to be a good mother when I'm in such a terrible state myself? Can you tell me about your family and your kids? Yeah, so I have two kids now. 
I got pregnant with my second child 11 weeks after my daughter was born. Wow, girl. I do not recommend it. (laughs) It was unplanned. Don't do that. (laughs) And I was like, well, here I am. Let's just do this. I've already got one. How different could it be? (laughs) I think quite different. It was quite different. (laughs) But I think by the time my son was born, which was a year after my daughter's birth. They're both um, August babies a year apart. By the time he was born, I had done some more healing, which it wasn't complete. It wasn't a complete process. I still had a lot to deal with, but it helped. It did make me a little bit more resilient in those first few weeks. I did have a little bit more confidence having already gone through it once. Um, So I've got two lovely children now. They're five and six. And we basically doing remote learning with my daughter who's in kindergarten and um, having breaks on the trampoline outside in between. Um, my son normally goes to daycare while I work from home. and My routine is pretty boring probably. <laughs> Just a cycle of kids and um, juggling the, the workload with my husband. And I'm very grateful though because I think it's a privilege to be able to be creative and to work from home and to have flexibility and to be able to, you know, tell your story even and share it with people and to create words and art and uh, do all these wonderful things. And for kids to even witness that process is such a great thing too, because they see me painting and then they get to see it in an exhibition or in a, you know, on a website or whatever. And that for them, I think is, is a great thing to expose a child to, to encourage them as well, to be creative and to put their work out there. Armani, thank you for your time today. Congratulations on the mother wound. It is so incredibly written and I think you've written something quite profound and something that I hope many Australians will read and will reflect on the kind of changes that we need to make as a country. I really appreciate you spending part of your afternoon with me. Thank you so much, Jamila. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's it for my conversation with Armani Haydar. Her book, The Mother Wound, is out from Pan Macmillan now in any good bookstore or online via Booktopia. And if you were listening to this episode and perhaps you need to talk to someone about violence or sexual assault or domestic abuse, then you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's one 800 737-732. They're available 24 hours a day. The Weekend List is up next. Don't go away. Welcome back for The Weekend List and welcome to Tate McGregor, who is jumping into the hot seat to tell us from lockdown in Sydney what on earth we're going to do this weekend. Tate? What are you going to do? I have a full album for you to check out. It's by my favourite artist on the planet right now, which I do not say lightly. His name is Still Woozy. He's from the States. He's like a psychedelic pop artist, over 5.7 million monthly Spotify listeners. And his debut album is called If This Isn't Nice, Then I Don't Know What Is. But he has like a very spacey yet intimate sound and he's able to make his songs melancholic, funny, dramatic, all in once. You'll hear squeaky chairs, you'll hear just a bunch of arrays of things. On every listen, you hear something new. So make sure you check out Still Woozy and his debut album. Let's fly, wild, change, 
Things are very glum around my house in lockdown here in Melbourne. We're into number six now and all I want is happy, light, fluffy deliciousness. And that is being served up to me at the moment by Stan Australia, who have got Drag Race Española. Now, if you are a RuPaul's Drag Race fan, this is part of the franchise but doesn't involve the usual crew and doesn't have RuPaul. That put me off at first and I was wrong. Friends, I was so wrong. This is so good. The Spanish queens are extraordinary. It is incredibly inclusive. It is joyous and explosive. The costumes are remarkable. And because there are subtitles, you actually have to watch it instead of playing on your phone, which I really need right now to keep me interested in anything. Well, I have another series you should be watching. It's on Binge. It's a Hulu series called The Act. You might have heard about it. It's been nominated for a couple of Emmys last year. And it's the dramatisation of Dee Dee and Gypsy Blanchard, which is a mother and daughter whose toxic relationship revolves around Dee Dee's Munchausen syndrome, which is a syndrome that is kind of like a factitious disorder of getting attention by falsifying illness. It's really intense. I've watched the first episode, but it stars Joey King as Gypsy and Patricia Arquette as Dee Dee. And it's so good. Oh, I am hooked. So watch it on binge. I will be binging all of it this weekend. Have you been able to confirm the girl's medical history? Which part? Any of it. That's what being a mom is, never being sure you're doing the right thing, but doing it anyway. I'm with the Children's Division of Missouri Social Services. Open. (coughs) Gypsy's got the mind of a seven-year-old. How old are you? Oh, she's 15, born in 1995. I thought you said I was born in 1993. Thanks, Tate. I feel like I'm going through television series so quickly right now that I am constantly in need of recommendations. I've got one to wrap us up, and that is that Melbourne Writers' Festival is back. The festival will be held between the 3rd and the 12th of September. I know, right? Crossing your fingers, are they even going to be able to hold it? But even if they don't get to hold it, you get all of your money back. So you may as well buy tickets, be hopeful, put it out into the universe that you're going to go and see some of these incredible authors speak. And if you're outside of Melbourne, MWF Digital is also back. The festival is bringing us some of the world's essential literary voices via video from Pulitzer Prize winners to exhilarating debut authors to the most talked about novelists of the year. So if you're a book nerd, or even if you've got like a particular niche interest, there will be something for you in the Melbourne Writers Festival program. You can find it online now. That's all we've got time for today, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us through a really heavy but really important to listen to episode. We hope we've given you a few things to binge and do this weekend, especially for half the country who are in lockdown across the eastern seaboard. Big love to all of you. Take care of yourselves. If you don't want to miss the next episode of The Weekend Briefing or indeed the next episode of The Briefing, then you need to subscribe. You can find us in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us? I ask every week, but this week I really want you to do it. Why not leave us a sneaky five-star review and some lovely words about how much you love The Briefing and The Weekend Briefing? We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early from 6am with Annika and Tom, who will have the latest headlines right to your headphones.
listener.